This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Bible turn to Romans chapter, are you ready for it? Romans chapter 2. I know, I know, hold your, hold your excitement. Uh, we made it to chapter number 1. And I have to tell you something. My wife came in my office last Sunday afternoon and she said, uh, sweetheart, I just want to let you know, uh, I love you, I'm for you, but there's 16 chapters in the book of Romans. And I said, well, I know that. And she said, do you? And I said, of course I do. Why would you even say that? She said, you said on two separate occasions today that Romans has 12 chapters in it. And I said, I don't know about that. She said, I promise you did. I don't want to be the one that flags you down and said, hey, you're wrong, but you're wrong. I was like, okay, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe you misheard, but I know you know there's 16 chapters in the book of Romans. Then I come to church on, on Sunday night, and there's four guys that are waiting for me at the door. <laughs> hey, pastor, we just want to make sure that you've got the right copy of the Bible and has all the chapters in it because... Okay, thank you very much. I know that there's 16 chapters in the book of Romans, and we find ourselves in chapter number two. Uh, so after uh, six months of uh, study through the book of Romans, we made it through the first chapter. Uh, somebody did the math for me today and found out that it'll actually be about seven and a half years at the current pace that we'll make it through all 16 chapters of the book of Romans. But we're hoping we can pick up the pace at some point, but uh, we're not making a lot of ground today. We're going through three verses today. Uh, Romans chapter two. Verses 1 through 3. Now, just to give you a little bit of context of what we've gone over so far. Paul writes to the church at Rome. It's a church that he's never visited before. He hopes to go and see them. He says, man, I've heard about your faith. It's famous throughout the whole world. I'm excited to be with you uh, because I want to preach the gospel. Uh, You guys are doing a great job. I want to encourage you, and I want you to, to encourage me. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then he goes on to say, hey, here's what the gospel says. It says that we're all guilty before God. Uh, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Uh, and then it goes on to, to, to describe for us, if we take a look at in great length, what happens when we set God to the side, we put other gods in its place, and we live for idolatry. As we get down to the end of that, Paul wraps it up. And in chapter 2, he turns his focus from just the church at Rome as a whole to really the church, uh, the Jews that are part of the church at Rome. Now, the Jews were, have a unique relationship with God based on the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. They now have a new relationship with God based on the New Testament and the New Covenant. Uh, and so he, he turns his attention primarily to Jews. If you look down towards verse number 17, he actually calls out who he's talking to, the Jews in this case here. But he starts off in, in chapter number two, dealing with something that, uh, that they were struggling with, and that was guilt, judgment, and hypocrisy. We'll take a look at that uh, this morning. Romans chapter 2, we're starting verse number 1, read through verse number 3. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. Now, again, therefore is one of those words that ties you back to something that happened previously. Previously, he talked about uh, idolatry and, and turning away from God. And if you do those things, you are inexcusable, O man, Whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. We're sure that the judgment of God is according to truth 
against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Several years ago, this would probably would have been, I was trying to think in my brain, uh, probably 16 to 17 years or so ago, I was, I was driving home. We uh, had a business here in, in Honolulu, and we lived in uh, Kapolei at the time. And so I was driving home after work one day, and uh, I got to the exit there where you exit to go to the Arizona Memorial off of the H1, right where the zipper lane closes. They got the little zipper lane garage over there. Uh, and there was a line of cop cars over there, and they were just pulling people over left and right. And for me, I'm obeying the law here. I got all my ducks in a row. I kind of uh, had a smug attitude towards those that were getting pulled over, like, ha-ha, look at you. Uh, and, uh, but I just minded my own business and kind of smiled as I went past and, uh, and went on in my self-righteousness, only to be now traffic is moving about two to three miles an hour because it's traffic. About the time a police officer steps in front of me and waves me over to the, to the side. And it's just like, what am I getting pulled over for? And again, I got no problem getting pulled over because I'm following the rules. I'm like all these rule breakers over here that are probably on their cell phones or probably, uh, you know, speeding or probably didn't have their seatbelts on. I'm going to speed limit. I got my seatbelt on. I'm not looking at my cell phone. Like, you can pull me over if you want to. I'm good. And he says, uh, he pulls me over. And he says, uh, hey, get out your license, registration, safety inspection, and insurance card. I got all that in like an envelope. I'm so put together. I have an envelope in my glove box that has all that stuff in the event that you pull me over. I got all my ducks in a row. So pull out my, my wallet, grab my ID, put it together with all the information, hand it to him. Uh, he says, uh, give me a minute, Mr. King, and I'll be back. So he goes back, and you can go back and do whatever you want to do. I am obeying the law. I've got all my paperwork in order. He comes back, and he says, uh, your insurance is expired. And it's just like, okay, my insurance card is expired. My insurance is not expired. Well, that's not what you're telling me here. Okay, fine. Um, do you know why I pulled you over? I have no idea why I got pulled over. And he said, you, like the rest of your fellow travelers today, were traveling in the carpool lane with one person in the car. Oh, come on. Are you serious? And so, and he goes, there's a sign right there. And no lie, directly behind him was a sign that says, carpool lane violations, $250 fine. And I was just like, oh, man, come on. And I was like, are you really going to write me a ticket for that? And he was like, you, you, were, you broke the law. It's just like, and so I'm angry at this point. I'm not walking in the spirit. I'm not a godly Christian at this point. I'm just mad, right? And just like, man, come on. Why don't you guys go out there and catch some real people that are doing some like real crimes instead of us folks that are just trying to get home after a hard day's work? Like, man, I was furious. But isn't it interesting that we have no problem judging the sins and faults of other people, but we struggle when we get called out ourselves, right? And we got excuses, we got reasons why that doesn't apply to us. That's precisely what Paul's addressing in Romans chapter 2, verse number 1. A group of people who were pointing out the flaws of everybody else, but didn't want the same thing pointed out in their own life. And that's problematic. We take a look at the, the beginning of verse number one. He says, therefore, based on everything we talked about in Romans chapter one, about when you sin against God, thou art, you are inexcusable, O man. That tells us that every single person is individually responsible to God for their own sin. Every single person responsible for what they've done against God. Now, there's nobody who gets a pass here. The children of Israel thought that they would get a pass. The Jews thought that they got a pass. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham, going back to the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. 
God told Abraham, I will give you land, a seed, and a blessing. Wherever you go, wherever your foot treads, I'm going to give you that land. Just keep walking and you can have all of it. I'm going to give you a seed that from your seed will come a great nation that will be like the, the stars in the sky. You can't even count how many people are coming from you, Abraham. Now, this was a big promise because Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were way past childbearing years. And out of you, Abraham, will all the nations of the entire world be blessed. Land, seed, blessing, Abrahamic covenant. That blessing, that third part of the blessing, that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham, was the promise that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come to set you and I free from our sins, from the seed of Abraham. So all the way back in the book of Genesis, God already had a plan on how to save your wretched, sin-sick soul, and it started with Abraham. Throughout the Old Testament, we find the children of Israel who blow off walking with God, begin to serve idols, begin to serve other gods, but they all the while maintain their pedigree. We're the children of Abraham. We're God's chosen people. Ain't nothing going to happen to us. Jeremiah comes and tells them, hey guys, you made God angry. You need to repent of your sin or God's going to take you into slavery. And they're like, please. We're the children of Abraham. God made a promise to us. We're not going to be slaves to nobody. And he's like, no, no, really, God told me to tell you this. And they refused, and sure enough, they were taken into uh, captivity by the Babylonians. In the book of Isaiah, much of the book of Isaiah is written under Babylonian captivity, where they're taking slaves. Interestingly enough, as Abraham talks, or, or I'm sorry, as Isaiah talks to them in Babylonian captivity, he continues to tell them to repent and repent, and they're just like, repent for what? What have we done? We're like God's people. And so all this while, they maintained a spirit of arrogance, like they were better than everybody else. And you find this even in the New Testament when the Pharisees begin talking with Jesus. They say to him, hey, we're of our father, Abraham. Who are you? Who's your dad? And so again, spirit of arrogance all over them that we're better than everybody else. Even when Jesus Christ comes and he says he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law and that we no longer have to keep the Levitical law, we now live under the grace that's provided under the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Jews did not like that. And they got into several churches in the Galatian region. It was a, the book of Galatians was written to a group of churches, not one individual church. But in the Galatian region, they got into these churches and began to say, hey, this new Christianity thing is really just a bolt-on add-on to Judaism. So you got to keep the law because we're God's chosen people. We're better than you. You can become like us, and you can add Jesus into the mix of what we do. And Paul had to write a letter saying, hey, guys, no, no, no. The law has been completed. It's over. It's done with. There are no more Jews. There are no more Gentiles. There's just only those in Christ. And we no longer need that law. So the whole book of Galatians was written to smack down the Jews that thought that they were better than everybody else. So we make our way to the church at Rome, and the Jews automatically believe we have a special relationship with God that you don't have. You guys need to obey the law. You guys need to obey the rules. But we're, we're good because we are God's chosen people. Now, Interesting thing about Israel is, first of all, God's covenants don't have expiration dates on them. God made a covenant to Abraham, and it's still in effect. God promised that the world through Abraham would be blessed. God had promised that there would be a great nation built out of Abraham, which still exists to this day. Despite the fact that Israel is incredibly tiny as far as military might goes, very small geographically, 
very small in comparison to the other major world powers. Israel cannot be militarily defeated whatsoever because they have God's blessing upon them. And and again, we don't get into politics and foreign policy. We believe that Jesus Christ is king and he sets up one and puts down another. But when it comes to things like foreign policy, we need to be a friend of Israel because Israel's a friend of God. Promise. But the Jews come to Christ or come to God the same way that everyone else does through Christ. So they no longer can come to God with a, a ceremonial cleansing or through ceremonial sacrifice or ceremonial festivals or ceremonial feasts. Now, if a Jew should come to, to God, they come the same way as everyone else through Jesus Christ, the Son. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so Jews now no longer have a protected special relationship with God. They don't get a free pass to heaven. Anyone who would be come born again must go through Jesus Christ alone. I, I praise God for many Jews who have come to faith in Christ. We refer to them as Messianic Jews where they keep the festivals and their ethnic heritage, but they believe that Christ alone is the only way to heaven. Those would be Messianic Jews. The rest of the Jews, Orthodox Jews, are still waiting for the Messiah to come. They still believe that there's coming one that will save them from uh, their political oppression and save them from their sins. It wasn't Jesus Christ, but they're waiting for another. And because of their rejection of Christ as Messiah, they're going to meet God in judgment in all of eternity. So when it comes to our sin before God, it doesn't really matter who you come from, where you come from. There's no exemption for culture or ethnicity when it comes to our standing before God. All of us are guilty. Verse 1, you are inexcusable. You don't get a free pass because you're a Jew. You don't get a free pass because you're a Gentile. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse number 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto all that believe to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ came originally to come to the Jews. He came into his own and his own received him not. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. Paul became an apostle to the Gentiles. Hey, the period of of Jews having exclusive rights to being the children of God, that's past. There's now a new covenant that all that would come to Christ in faith and repentance would become the children of God. You might not know this, but the Old Testament, New Testament is the division of the, the Bible. In between the Old Testament and New Testament, there's 400 years of silence where God didn't speak or say anything. In the Old Testament, the word testament literally means covenant. And so the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. The New Testament is the New Covenant. And it begins with the Gospels, the story of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is at the Last Supper with his apostles, taking the Passover meal, he says, take, drink of this. This is the New Testament in my blood. This is the New Covenant that begins now. And the next day, Jesus Christ would be crucified and shed his blood for the remission of the sins of mankind, kicking off the new covenant. So Jews now have no protected status when it comes to their standing before God. Jews can't go to their priest anymore to absolve them of their sins because Hebrews tells us there's a new high priest in town and his name is Jesus and we need no other other than him. So we can't go to our priest anymore to to save us from our sin. We can't make sacrifices anymore because now a sacrifice has been made once and for all for the sins of mankind. And it's a greater sacrifice, and the sacrifice was Jesus Christ. 
So doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, you stand guilty before God. Doesn't matter your culture or your background, you stand guilty before God for your sin. There's no exemption for family heritage either. Doesn't really matter whether you grew up in a Christian home or not. Doesn't really matter who your parents were. Doesn't really matter, you know, again, what happened in your family tree. In talking with people about their faith and talking about people with the gospel, man, I try to, to have gospel conversations every single week of the world. I try to find somebody that needs to know about Jesus. And I'll generally ask people the question, hey, if you died today, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? And, and I, I love to listen to people's responses. And oftentimes people say, yes, I'm absolutely sure. And I always ask the following question, based on what? And just know, when it comes to answering that question, there's only one acceptable answer. Yes, I know for sure that I'm going to heaven when I die because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and repented of my sins. That's the only acceptable answer. But I get all kinds of crazy answers. Sometimes people say, yes, I believe I'm going to heaven based on what? Based on the fact that I'm a good person. Okay, we'll take a look at that uh, excuse in uh, just a moment. Uh, well, I'm going to heaven because I, I go to church and I'm a really good person. Okay, well, churches don't save people from their sins. But the one that always baffles me, and they, they say, if you died today, are you sure you're going to heaven? They said, absolutely so. How do you know? Because my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. Come again? I'm not talking about your granddad, I'm talking about you. Yeah, my, 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 my whole family is blessed by my grandfather. Okay, he was a good man, probably blessed a lot of people, but that doesn't do anything for your sin condition. My grandma, she prays like nobody else. I mean, the floorboards by her bed are worn out from her kneeling in prayer day after day, hour after hour. Man, she prays like nobody prays. Okay, what about you? Oh, my grandmother prays for me. Your grandmother cannot pray you into heaven. Your grandmother cannot pray for the forgiveness of your sins. This is a personal responsibility. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse number 20 makes it ridiculously clear. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Pause for just a second and hear me out. You and I have broken God's law. If God sets a rule and you and I break it, the Bible calls that sin. And you and I didn't just sin once. If we did, that's enough to make us guilty, according to James. If any man uh, if in one point of the law is guilty of all, that would be enough. But you and I continue to sin. Given the opportunity to choose our way versus God's way, we continue to choose our own way. We've broken God's law. We've sinned against God. And because of that, there must be consequences. The Bible says there are consequences. The wages of sin is death. You will die one day, I will die one day, and it's not just lights out, it's over and done with. It's appointed unto man once to die, after that, the judgment. You and I will stand before God when we die here on earth one day, and we'll give an account of our life, the Bible says. So, Ezekiel chapter uh, 18, verse number 20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity or the sin of the father, Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. Everyone's responsible for their own sin. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. 
But if the wicked will turn from all the sins he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live and he shall not die. Here's the gospel in the book of Ezekiel. That if you're willing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ and do what God has commanded you, you won't die, you'll live forever in eternity in heaven with God. But it's important to note, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Friend, the day that you stand before God, nobody's going to be there with you. You can't say, okay, mom, tell them why I'm going to heaven. She's not going to be there. Well, do you know my grandmother? Her name's Gertrude. She prayed for me a lot. Gertrude ain't there. You stand before God, and your wickedness is upon your own shoulders. And here's the thing for me as a pastor. I know you will personally stand before God one day. I'm trying to prepare you for that event so that you don't just show up going like, oh, my soul, I had no idea this was going to happen. You know, you know you're going to stand before God, and you're prepared. And you'll meet God in one of two ways. You'll either meet him in judgment where God says your wickedness is upon you and because of your sin, you'll be separated from me forever in a place called hell that burns with real fire for all of eternity and there's no second chances and no getting out. That's the real deal. That's what I deserve because I've broken God's law. That's what you deserve because you've broken God's law. Or God sent his son Jesus to pay that penalty for you. You see, I can't pay for your sin because I already owe God something myself because of my own sin. You can't pay for my sin because you already owe God. A church can't pay for your sins because the church is just a collective of a group of sinners who already owe God something. You can't wash away your sins with water or by baptism or by religious works. You can do good stuff, but that doesn't fix all the things that you've already broken. So there must be a way to make things right other than death. So God sent his son Jesus and lived a perfectly sinless life and he died for me and for you. You see, we were supposed to die because we had sinned. He died for us despite the fact that he had never sinned. The Bible says he who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus Christ, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, Christ Jesus. Jesus died so that you and I can live. Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin. But here's the most important thing in the world. You have to believe that and receive it yourself because your sin is on your own head. I can't play a blanket, play a, pray a blanket prayer for everybody here that they would be saved. I can't do it. I wish I could. I can't make you get things right with God. I wish I could, but I can't. Your wickedness is upon your own head, and you have to make that right with God. And here's the way that you do it. Faith and repentance. You say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he's the only way to heaven. I believe that, that he died for my sins and rose again the third day. I'm asking him to save me and forgive me of my sins. And if you would do that and really, really believe it and mean it, the Bible says that you can be saved or born again. Those words are synonymous. They mean the same thing. But here's what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse number 3. No man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. 
You have to be saved to go to heaven. There's no other way. There's no back door. There's no separate route. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And you'll stand before God one day, and friend, again, your righteousness, again, go back to Ezekiel chapter 18, the righteousness of the righteous will be upon him. When you stand before God, here's the beautiful thing that the Bible tells us in the New Testament, New Covenant, that when you are saved or born again, God takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and exchanges it for your sinfulness. So your wickedness is no longer upon you. It's been given to Jesus who was punished for it. And the righteousness of Jesus was given to you and I. So that when we stand before God, there's nothing to judge because when God looks at us, we haven't done anything wrong because Jesus gave us his righteousness. So friend, please understand Everyone is guilty before God. There's no exception for family heritage. There's no exception for ignorance. Well, I didn't know. You're still guilty. In Romans chapter 1, we spent so much time in Romans chapter 1, verse number 20 tells us that God's revealed himself unto all people so that they're without excuse. You say, well, what about the people in, you know, Africa that are part of a tribe that have never heard? Hey, if there's people out there that are going to die and go to hell, you should go tell them, or I should, somebody should. That's why we support missionaries who go to parts of Africa and tell people about Jesus. Otherwise, they're going to die and go to hell. But hey, look, we don't have to go to Africa to find people who don't know about Jesus. You probably just have to go to work tomorrow morning. That's why we take the gospel very, very seriously, because there's no pass for ignorance. Just because you, oh, I didn't know. It doesn't matter. You're still going to pay the penalty of your own sin. You say, well, I'm, I'm just trying to be a better person. I'm trying to turn over a new leaf. I'm trying to do good things. The Bible tells us that self-righteousness is foolishness. Again, if we take a look at verse number one in our text here. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, whoever you are that judges. For when, wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself, for that you, thou that judgest doeth the same things. You see, the problem with us is that we automatically think that we're better than we actually are. And we automatically then, when we become puffed up with our unrighteousness, well, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm not like that guy over there. And we get puffed up with pride and self-righteousness. We begin to put down others around us. This is a problem of the Pharisees. They'd stand in the markets and they'd pray and say, Oh, God, thank you that I'm not a sinner like this guy. I mean, I'm better than than him. I mean, thank you that you didn't leave me alone like this guy who doesn't love you, obviously. And so then Jesus is like, no, no, no. Those guys that get the applause of men, they have their reward. But their reward is not in heaven, that's for sure. But when we become self-righteous, When we're the guy that snickers while everybody's getting pulled over on the side of the road, (laughs) we don't realize the depths of our own depravity. And again, if we think that we can be good enough, I can just stop sinning, you don't understand God's expectation. We underestimate God's expectation of holiness when we think that we can do this on our own. Look, if you think you can go through the next 24 hours without sinning one single solitary time, you don't understand the level of God's holiness that he expects. You can say, 
well, I could stay in bed for 24 hours and then I wouldn't sin, right? Actually, you wouldn't. Because the Bible commands you to do things throughout your day, whether it's share your faith or be good to other people or bless people with your speech or have kind words towards people. Like, you can't just sleep and just avoid sin like, because there's things that you have to actively be doing. You see, when we, we think of sin, you can really kind of break sin up into a couple different categories. There's sins that we commit, sins of commission. And I said something that I shouldn't have or I thought a thought that I, I, I didn't. And there's sins of omission, things that we're supposed to do, but we don't. Love our neighbor the way that we love ourselves. When I withhold love from my neighbor, I'm sinning against my neighbor. Well, I didn't do anything bad to him, but you're not loving him the way that you're commanded. And so we could go through our life with a fine-tooth comb and realize we could never possibly meet God's expectation for holiness. Self-righteousness is not a thing. The Bible tells us that the law, just even the Ten Commandments, were given to us to show us our need for a Savior, to prove to us that we can't do this on our own. Jesus had a a rich young ruler that came to him in Luke chapter 18. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest me good? None's good save one, that is God. So he stops him. He doesn't answer the question before he corrects him. Good? Who sets the standard for good? And what do you know about me that would cause you to call me good? God's standard of goodness is perfection. I don't know if you've ever said this before. I know I have. And, and if, you ha- if you say it, I know what you mean by it. But like, I know that guy's not saved, but he's just a really good man. You know? He's kind. He's compassionate. He does good for other people. I mean, not a Christian, but he's a good guy. And again, we're comparing to the standard that we have. You know? He speaks with a soft voice. He smiles. You know? He brought me cookies one time. You know, that makes him good. God's standard is not smiling, talking in a soft voice, and bringing cookies. God's standard for goodness is higher than that. So when this ruler comes to Jesus and he says, hey, good master, Jesus stops him for a second. Not that Jesus was not good. He was because he was perfect. But he stops him because this ruler doesn't recognize Jesus Christ's lordship and master. And so he calls him good, and Jesus is like, hold up, there's only one good person, that's God. But then he goes on in the, the question that he had, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments, thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and mother. So Jesus goes through a portion of the Ten Commandments. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet thou lackest one thing. Sell all thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And we heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Man, we don't have time to unpack all the truth that's just in this really short story. But first of all, we see that this guy did not understand the level of God's holiness that he expects. Because Jesus says, hey, you got to keep the Ten Commandments, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, honor your parents. And the, the guy goes, whoa, 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 I got that. Like, I mean, I've done that since I was a kid. Like, there's got to be something else. 
Little did this guy know, in his boast of self-righteousness, he'd actually sinned against God by bearing false witness. You're telling a lie. You haven't kept the whole law since you were a kid. That's a lie. But Jesus, now mind you, Jesus is talking to a guy that he knows exactly every sin this guy's ever committed in his life, knows his heart. He says to him, okay, I mean, if you say that you've kept the entire law since the time you were a child, go sell everything that you have, distribute to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, some people incorrectly view this as eternal life comes by selling everything that you have and giving it to the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Christians are not required to take a vow of poverty to follow after God. We're not commanded to sell everything that we have, and then we can go to heaven. Jesus was exposing, are you ready for the word? Idolatry in his life. He's exposing idolatry. Hmm, rich guy. Take everything that you have and sell it, and then come follow me. And little did this guy know, the guy didn't put two and two together because he was just kind of bent out of shape and walked away. He didn't put two and two together that this guy, by refusing to give up his idols, had broken the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Idolatry right there. And so Jesus wasn't saying, sell everything you have and then you get to go to heaven. No, Jesus is saying, if my father is first place in your life, then you can have eternal life. You can't come to God unless you recognize that he is the boss. Romans chapter 10 says, unless you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that he's the master, he's the boss, he calls the shots, I follow him and him alone, you can't go to heaven. And so we underestimate the, the bar which God sets for holiness, and then we also underestimate the depths of our own sinfulness. 90% of people that I talk to, when I ask the question, if you die today, are you sure you're going to heaven? And they say yes, and I say why. 90% of them will say the same thing. Does anybody want to guess what it is? I am a good person. The book of Proverbs says, every man shall declare his own goodness. Everybody's going to tell you that they're a good guy. Everybody's going to tell you that they're better than the other guy. You know? I mean, your boss comes to you and says, hey, I'm thinking about putting you or your coworker in one of these positions. What do you think about that? You immediately go into, like, I'm the, I'm the obvious choice, right? I mean, because I'm better than him. But when we come to God and we live self-righteously, like we are better than somebody else, that we're good in and of ourselves, we underestimate the depths of the depravity of our own heart. If you could ever get a glimpse of how wicked your heart is, I mean like wicked, awful, terrible, rotten, filthy, repugnant, pus-filled, oozing, nasty-smelling, wicked, pathetic heart. If you get like a glimpse of that, it's about 10 times worse than you can imagine. You can't plunge the depths of your own depravity. Again, when we look on the news and we see heinous things that have happened, we think to ourselves, how could a human being do something like that? You have to realize, were it not for the grace of God restraining you, 
you would have done the exact same thing. But again, it's easy for us to sit back and go, oh, wow, sinners, awful, huh? No, no, no. You don't understand how wicked your own heart is. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, those that want to help other people, judge not that ye be not judged. Now, again, this verse here is really important because sometimes people that don't know the Bible or especially carnal Christians, if you say, hey, brother, I'm concerned about you. What you're doing is a sin. Whoa, the Bible says judge not. You're, you're judging. Eh, you need to read the rest of what the Bible says, right? First of all, the Bible says judge not lest ye be judged yourself. But it also says the judgment by which you measure someone by the same measuring stick you're going to be measured yourself. But here's the thing. When it comes to judging people, generally people say that, oh, you're judging me if we tell them that they're, they're wrong. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what the Bible has already spoken. I don't, I'm not mixing my opinion in or my feelings in with it. I'm just telling you what the Bible has already said. I'm not judging. God has already judged. But it says, judge not, ye, ye be judged, Matthew chapter 7, verse number 1. For what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged with, and what measure ye meet with, whatever measuring stick you use, you're going to be measured with that as well. And why beholdest thou the mote, the speck that's in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam that's in thine own eye? The Bible, uh, Jesus accused the Pharisees of straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Like you're looking at your brother who has this teeny tiny speck in his eye, meanwhile you got a log in your own eye. And then Jesus gives this challenge. If you want to help your brother who has a speck in his eye, you should probably get rid of your own log first. Now again, this is a classic passage that carnal Christians love to jump on whenever someone tries to encourage them towards righteousness. Hey, I heard you moved in with your boyfriend. I don't think that's wise. It's against the Bible. Cohabitation is bad. Fornication is bad. I don't think that's wise. Well, who are you to judge? You should take a look at the beam that's in your own eye before you judge my speck in my eye. I'm not judging. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I don't think it's wise. And in Christian love, I'd encourage you to seek after righteousness because God wants to bless your life. Not judgment. But we need to make sure that our righteousness is not found in self. I'm not walking around saying, yeah, I'm somebody because I'm a good guy. Paul says... I know in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Look, if there's anything good or noble about the life that Anthony King lives, it's Jesus Christ at work in me, definitely not me. So if you have something good to say, I would say to that good thing that you have to say about me, praise the Lord. Oh, you guys have got some, some really great kids. Man, praise God. We tried to screw them up, but Lord turned them out okay, right? Seriously, like, I mean, we made so many mistakes. My kids grow up to, to love Jesus. It's by the grace of God. Praise God. Oh, you know, I have such a great marriage. Praise God. It's not me. I've tried to mess it up every opportunity I've gotten. But God's been gracious. Praise God for that. As opposed to, yeah, you know, I've learned a few things in life, and I'm a little bit smarter than everybody else. That's why my marriage is good. My family is good. Let he that take, thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. Look, don't put a picture of your family as the picture-perfect family because it's only a matter of time before somebody's going to draw devil horns on there and put X's over people's faces, right? It, seriously. I'm not lifting up my marriage 
or my family or our church as anything that I have done, anything good, it's the grace of God at work. And God deserves the praise and glory for that. And so again, I don't have the right to run around and tell people, you can't do that, you can't do this, look at me, Uh, I don't do the things that you do. I don't have the right to do those things. That's judging, which the Bible says, I cannot do. Now, he gets into something that's a little bit deeper, and this might hit a little bit close to home for some folks. And if it, look, if the shoe fits, wear it today. But hypocrisy in the Christian life is really difficult to self-diagnose. He begins to talk about hypocrites. Oftentimes when I invite people to church, it's just like, oh, I'd love you to come to Holy Call. You know, I think you'd enjoy it. We've got stuff for your kids and stuff like that. Oh, I don't care for that. The church is just full of hypocrites. Eh, okay, we've got room for a couple more if you want to come. <laughs> no lie. This church isn't perfect. And here's, here's what happens many times, Christians. You'll get discouraged or even if, if, you're, not, if you're not a Christian yet. You come to this church and you sit down and you look around and you go, wow, look at that family over there sitting together. They got it all together. They got all the answers. Their kids are perfect, not a, a hair out of place, you know. Look at that family over there. They got it all together. Look at that single gal over there. She's so content in her singleness and she just loves God so much. Hey, look, you don't know other people's story. And let me just tell you this. There's not a single person in this room that has it all together, myself included. And look, if you're sitting there thinking that you got it all together, see me afterwards. I'd love to help you to get a reality check. (laughs) Really. Because none of us have it all together. But I believe, and I hope that you're here for this reason, I recognize that I am irreparably broken apart from whatever healing God can bring to my life. And I'm here because I need the grace of God today, tomorrow, and every other day till I see Jesus. My family needs that. My children need that. My wife needs that. My neighbor needs that. My friends need that. That's why I'm here, because I need help. Not because I have it all together. But hypocrisy destroys that, because hypocrisy is really ugly. The definition of hypocrisy, I got in your notes there. The practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. In other words, I say that I'm something that I'm really not. The practice of claiming to have higher standards or more laudable beliefs than is the case. Or the hiding of interior wickedness under the appearance of virtue. This is really ugly because hypocrisy is not, hey, I'm trying really hard to follow Jesus, but it's hard, you know? I'm trying to follow Jesus, but my flesh keeps pulling me back, but I keep fighting, and I want to do the right thing, and I'm trying to read my Bible, I'm trying to pray, and I'm trying to do the right thing, and it's just hard sometimes, and some days I have good days, some days I have bad days, but I'm trying to just keep pushing forward. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is, I have no desire to live for God. I have no desire to love God, but I need to keep up the appearance on the outside so that nobody thinks anything's wrong. Outside appearances are very easy to fake, very easy. Look, you can go down to men's warehouse and buy yourself a, a nice snazzy suit with a, a three-button that you know even to leave the bottom button of the three-button unbuttoned. You can get yourself a pocket square that matches the tie that you're wearing. You get yourself a nice pair of slacks and some wingtip shoes. You can go down to the Christian bookstore and buy the largest Bible that you can find and carry it under your arm. You can get yourself a fresh haircut and you can sit on the front row and you can say, Amen, that's good, preacher, come on. 
You can stand at the handshaking time and say, brother, it's so good to see you this week. I prayed for you, and I, I just prayed for God's blessing upon your life. You can do that, and honestly, if you got the money to go buy all that stuff, it, it's take you about 20 minutes to do that. But to change your heart to be a man or woman of God, <laughs> that takes a little bit longer than about 20 minutes. And real lasting change takes from the part on the inside and then goes outside. But here's the problem with hypocrisy. They want to put on a front, meanwhile knowing the inside's broken and not really wanting to mess with that. They bring their Bible to church on Sunday and when they get in the car, they throw it in the back seat and turn on their filthy music that they've been listening to all the rest of the week and continue on living a lifestyle of sin. And when they come back to church, they put on a really good appearance. They sing the songs, they smile, they say, hey, good to see you, glad you're here today. And then they go back to their lifestyle of sin. Maybe they might get their act together to show up for a midweek, Wednesday night, small group, and they sit in their small group and they say, pray for me, I'm just fighting the devil this week. <laughs> no, you're not fighting the devil, you're like in the bed with the devil. Like, and again, mind you, any Christian that wants to live for Jesus is going to struggle against the flesh. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when there's no longer a struggle against the flesh. You give in to the flesh. You lay down with the flesh. You cover yourself up with your sin. You find comfort in your sin. And you're like over in your bedroom like making sin angels in all of your sin. And you don't feel badly about it either until Sunday comes and you feel like, oh, I guess I should go to church because people are going to be looking for me. I'm going to go and put on a really good show on Sunday. And then... Once the show wears off, then you go on. One of the hardest things I've ever had to hear about someone in our church, they don't attend our church anymore, years ago, was they had a daughter who said, you know, pastor, my parents put on a really good show at church, but when we get in the car, all the smiles and laughing goes away. And they said, and I never get to see it again until we come back to church. Man, that hurt my heart to hear that. You know what that is? That is classic textbook hypocrisy. The, the Greek word that the Bible uses for the word hypocrite in the Bible means to play a part, to put on a show, to feign, to fake, to wear a mask. That's what hypocrisy means. Hypocrisy is not you're trying to be a Christian and you struggle. Everybody struggles. Hypocrisy is I want people to think I'm a good Christian or to think I'm a Christian at all when I know good and well that I am not. And look, you don't have to put on a show for anybody. Look, we're not handing out awards. Oh, most improved this week goes to Billy Bo, Joe, Jim Bob over here. You know, let's give a hand for him. You know, nobody cares. If you're trying to put on a show, let me just tell you this. I'm going to help. I'm going to save you the trouble. If you're trying to put on a show by coming to who we call it and being something that you're not, save yourself the trouble because nobody cares. We just want you to love Jesus and walk with him. That's all. And if you have to fake that, our heart hurts for you. We don't have to put on a show. And here's the thing. We're not going to be impressed by any type of show that you put on. That's not because we're mean and we're ugly. It's because we just love you and want you to be you. So that you can find out who Jesus is and, and let Jesus change who you are. That's what we want for you. We're not impressed, but God is, is ultra upset about that. God hates hypocrisy. Again, hypocrisy is not a Christian who sins and repents. Hypocrisy is a Christian who sins, hides it, deceives others, all the while creating an illusion of righteousness. 
<laughs> Jesus said in the book of Matthew, chapter number 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you're like whitened sepulchers. These are graves that were very meticulously cared for. But inside, you're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Outside looks great. The Pharisees would often even wear their ceremonial robes like out in the market. Like they wear like a, a big white flowing robe and a big hat to the market so that people see how great they are. And Jesus says, right past that veneer of what you're wearing is wickedness and uncleanness and filth. And he says, woe unto you. Man, I feel badly for what's coming your way is what he said. So I would encourage you today. Paul is, is calling out the Jews in, in verses 1 and 2. Hey, you're, you're down on everybody else, but you're doing the exact same thing. The judgment that you want for, to come upon them, that, that same judgment is coming for you. I want to encourage you today to, first of all, check your own heart. Make sure that your heart's right before God. I would ask you this. Make sure that you're really a Christian. You've really been saved and born again. Not like, oh, I'm a Christian because I believe in God. Has there been a time, a date, a place where you were born again and you know it? Not, oh, my grandma told me one time that I was saved. I'm not talking, your grandma will not be with you on judgment day. I prayed a prayer one time in vacation Bible school when I was six, and I don't remember what it was, but I think that's got me covered. I, that would be a terrible thing to say to God on judgment day. Hey, that one vacation Bible school, that one time somewhere in some really hot city in the summertime, I prayed some prayer with some people that I forgot about. Does that cover me? Please don't hang your eternity on hope so, think so. You need to know for sure that you're born again. And so you say, I'm 100% sure that, I, that I'm saved. No doubt about it. Good. You need to check your heart for any type of hypocrisy. You want other people to, to follow Jesus, but you're not willing to do the same yourself. You're more concerned with what other people think. Hypocrisy really comes down to pride. I think I'm better than other people. I want people to think that I'm better than them. I want to appear to be something that I'm really not. I'm not willing to put in the time, the effort, the energy to be what people think that I am, but I'm going to put the time, effort, energy into making a really good show so that people will think that I'm something that I'm not. Hypocrisy causes us to hold other people to a higher standard than we hold to ourselves. That's what he says in verse number um, two. I'm sorry, verse number one. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Hey, if you're telling somebody what they're doing is wrong and God's going to judge them, just know you're doing the same thing and God's going to judge you too. You're just condemning yourself. But we want other people to hold to a higher standard than we want to hold ourselves. Well, that guy, you know, I've never seen him pass out a, a track before in my life. Are you passing out tracks? Well, they can drive a nice car because they probably don't tithe. Are you tithing? Don't worry about what they're doing. Again, we want to hold other people to a higher standard than what we have for ourselves. People who want to label Christians, oh, a bunch of fakes and phonies and hypocrites, man. Uh, you know, I know a guy that called himself a Christian and he was unfaithful to his wife. Yeah, me too. So what? You're going to judge everybody for that? And, hey, Aren't you like on your fourth marriage yourself? Like, again, we, we want to hold people to a higher standard than we hold to ourselves. Here's the thing. 
I don't set a standard that I hold people to. You don't set a standard people hold, we hold people to. God sets the standard that everyone obeys. That's how this works. And we don't get a right to say who or who isn't hitting the mark. Verse number two, it says, we're sure that the judgment of God according to the truth against them which commit such things. So who judges? God judges. Judging by anyone other than God is condemned. You and I don't have a right to make a judgment on somebody's life. God does that. I saw a guy one time who had a massively large tattoo on his forearm. He said, only God can judge me. And the dude was living a heinous, wicked lifestyle of sin. And I thought to myself, you don't even know what that means. Like, yes, God can judge you. But God's word tells you exactly how he will judge you. Now, I can't pass judgment on your life. I can only agree with what God's word has already said. You reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah, you will spend eternity separated from him in hell. That's not a judgment. That's just me saying what the Bible has already said. Look, when you get involved in things like premarital sex, you're stealing from the joy of your future marriage. That's not me judging you. That's me helping you understand biblical truth. And I don't think poorly of you because you've made bad decisions. I want to help you. There's no judgment here. We don't look down on people. Oh, can you believe that they, oh, that's shameful. We don't do that kind of stuff here. Hey, if you made poor decisions, I want to help you make better decisions. Hey, you're on a pathway that's going to ruin your life. I want to help you get on the pathway that God blesses. But there's no judgment here. You make mistakes, I've made mistakes. We're in the same boat together. We need the grace of God. We can't make a complete judgment on somebody simply off of what we see. Oh, yeah, so-and-so, he's not even in church on Sunday. Did you know that he's at work today and tried to get out of it, but he couldn't? Did you know that, or are you just going to pass judgment on somebody's church attendance? Oh, so-and-so, they're not as faithful as they used to be. Do you know what's going on in their life right now? Maybe, maybe not. But see, you and I want to sit back in our, our armchair and, and cast judgment on other people. We, we don't have the right to do that. And I praise God that who we call it has never been that type of church. And let me just tell you, this is preventative maintenance that we're going through right now. I'm talking about stuff like this. We've never been a judgy church. We will never be a judgy church, period. Look, wherever you're at in life right now, this is a safe space to be in because we're just going to help you take it up from there, wherever you're at. You don't have to, like, come to a certain degree of righteousness, and then you can come to church. I remember... My son Thatcher and I, the first time we went to a, a CrossFit gym, man, the workout there was absolutely awful. <laughs> it was terrible. And, like, I'd, I'd been in the gym, been lifting weights. I'd, I'd run marathons before and triathlons and things like that, and I thought I was in decent shape. Me and Thatcher go, and we just got destroyed by the first workout. It was uh, thrusters and burpees, which everybody hates burpees. But it was like you do 21 thrusters and 21 burpees, then you do 19 thrusters and 19 burpees, and you do uh, 17 and 17, 15, 13. It was just like it went on forever. And I was just about to vomit. And I, and I told Thatcher afterwards, I was like, hey, dude, we're going to have to, like, get in shape before we start CrossFit because we're going to die, man. Like, and so I, I, I told the coach on the way out, hey, Man, like, this has been real, but, like, I'm not cut out for this. Like, I got, I got ladies over here that are, like, eating my lunch, you know. Like, I can't, I can't even keep up with this lady. She's, like, in her 60s over here. Like, 
I have to like get in shape to start this. And he's like, no, 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 no. We meet you where you're at. And if you can't do this, we'll figure out what you can do. And the 60-year-old lady, she started when she was 55, you know. She's been doing this for five years, and she's just working at a pace she can work at. And one of the things I love about things like fitness and stuff like that, there's so many parallels to the Christian life. See, sometimes people come into a church like this and look around and go, I can never be like that guy, you know. I didn't grow up in a family like these people over here. They're like holding hands and singing songs about Jesus. Like, I don't even know anything about this life, you know. No, God meets you where you are, and you grow from there. And the people that got their family together holding hands and singing about Jesus, they didn't start doing that last week. They started doing it like 10 years ago. And wherever you're at, you can start where you are and you can continue to grow because there's no judgment here. We just want to help you to be everything that God's called you to be. And we can't make judgment off of people's lives or lifestyles based simply on what we see. Human judgment's based on prejudice and partial perception. Somebody one time made a, an awful statement to my wife that hurt her feelings. My wife has a, a Tiffany necklace that has an envelope in it. It has a diamond in the, the corner of the envelope. And somebody looked at it and they go, oh, my soul, is that a Tiffany necklace? And my wife said, yeah. I was like, wow, must be nice. I can never afford something like that. <laughs> and my wife, with every bit of grace that she had, she's like, when my grandmother passed away, she left me a small amount of money that I bought something that reminded me of her. And my grandmother used to write me letters and put them in the mailbox, and that envelope reminds me of my grandmother. <laughs> and the person's just like, oh, I am so, what happened? You made a judgment based on a little bit of information you thought that you had, and it turned out not to be so. How about you just be gracious, be kind? We don't make rash judgment based on bits and pieces of information. I don't do marriage counseling with one spouse and not the other because I don't want to hear one side of the story. I don't want to make a judgment based on limited amount of information that I have. I want to hear the whole story. And you and I can't make judgment about anybody else's life because we don't know the life that they're living. You don't know their story, their background. You don't know whether they're sick, whether they're healthy. You don't know the, whether they're struggling financially or whether they had problems getting to church because they don't have a car. You don't know any of those things. So you don't have the opportunity to make any judgments on where anybody's at. You don't get to say like, oh, uh, her husband never comes to church with her. He must not love Jesus. Maybe he's working. Maybe he's deployed. Maybe he's trying to get off work so he can be to church on time, but he can't get there. You know, maybe he's caring for a sick family member on the mainland. You don't know. So we always make, need to make sure that we reserve that type of judgment and just <laughs> make it really not easy. Mind your own business. That's what Paul's telling them here. Hey, stop looking at everybody else's sin and take a look at your own. While we can observe sin and call it what it is, we can't condemn or pass judgment based off our limited knowledge. Hey, look, I can look at a, a boyfriend and girlfriend that are living together in cohabitation and say, that's a sin according to the Bible. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to judge your motives. You might, in your mind, have a really good idea why that worked, whether it's really expensive to live in Hawaii, you didn't have a place to live, or whatever. The Bible calls it sin. I'm not judging you for that. I don't think you're a terrible person because of that. I just want to help you grow. The Bible says Christians shouldn't date unbelievers and shouldn't marry unbelievers. Hey, if you're doing that, it's a sin. I'm not judging you for it. I'm just trying to help you see biblical truth and give you some advice to help you to grow. Now, again, I'm not going to judge your heart or you're doing this because you don't love Jesus or anything like that. I'm not judging anybody. I'm just saying, here's what the Bible says. I want to see that and grow. So we need to be very, very careful 
even if we see a brother or sister that's caught in sin, we need to have a lot of prayer. We need to have a lot of humility. We need to pull them to the side in private and say, hey, brother, I'm concerned. I see this in your life. I want to help you grow and be better. I'm not judging. I don't think you're a terrible person. But if I was sinning against God, I hope that you would love me enough to confront me with that. But that's not the spirit of what was happening here in the church at Rome. You had Jews running around telling people, hey, I'm better than you because I'm a Jew and you need to get on my level and follow me. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not how this thing works. Because at the end of the day, verse 3 tells us that no one will escape the judgment of God. And thinkest thou this, O man, that thou shouldst judge them which do such things and do the same? Thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Everybody's going to stand before God one day. No getting out of that. And while it's true that only God can judge, he's given us criteria by which he will judge. Man, when my kids were in school and they uh, had projects they had to turn in. I loved it when the teacher would send home, as part of the project packet, the rubric, right? Because it tells you the score sheet. You get 10 points on an introduction. You know, you get 30 points on the body. You know, you get 20 points on the conclusion. And you get, like, two points for the bibliography. It's like, okay, if we get stuck, bibliography can go. It's only two points, right? It's like, that doesn't matter. We're going to focus on the body. That's where the bulk of our points are at. If we get stuck and at the end of the day, we don't have time to do the bibliography, we can just leave it out. It's only two points. Because you know what you're getting into, right? You know what's expected of you. And you know how it's going to be scored. God's given his, his scorecard, his rubric ahead of time. Here's what he expects of us. Either you obey it or you don't. But judgment comes from God, yes, but he's already told us how he's going to judge us. And here's the thing for you. I want you to be able to stand before God in judgment one day with joy in your heart. To say, I didn't live a perfect life, but I lived for your glory throughout my life. I tried to do what was right to the best of my ability. I didn't live a life of hypocrisy. I didn't put on a show. I failed, yes, but when I failed, I repented and I came back. And no lie, I, I think about standing before God at the judgment seat of Christ at least two or three times a week, if not daily, sometimes daily. I think, I might die today. Let me just help you with this. You don't have a promise of tomorrow. If there's anything that needs to get buttoned up in your life, button it up today. If there's relationships that are open-ended, that ah, it's kind of messy over there, would you fix that? Because you don't have a promise of tomorrow. If there's somebody that you've sinned against and you need to ask for forgiveness, would you do that like today? Because you don't have a promise of tomorrow. Just get that settled once and for all. If there's sin in your life that you say, oh, I'm going to fix that one of these days. Once I get past this busy period of my life, this thing's going on, I'm going I'm to repent of that and get that right. Would you just do that today? Because you might be standing before God tomorrow morning. And you'd be prepared for that. And I want you to stand there one day with joy that you invested your life well. The Bible tells us at the judgment seat of Christ that your entire life's work is going to be taken and placed on a fire before God. And it's going to burn. And there's certain things of your life that didn't matter that you put so much emphasis on that are going to burn because they're wood, hay, and stubble, the Bible says. Hey, whoever wins that football game today, that's wood, hay, and stubble. Hey, whoever won the World Series last year, wood, hay, and stubble. Hey, that really big presentation you did at work and everybody was like blown away by your PowerPoint deck because nobody's ever seen one like that before. Yeah, that's wood, hay, and stubble. 
You pray with your kids tonight before you go to bed. Oh, the Bible's got a second category for that. Gold, silver, precious stone. Those are things when placed upon the fire, they're refined. They're made better as a result of it. And when my life is placed upon the fire at the judgment seat of Christ, I want the good stuff to be the most stuff. The things that really mattered. The times that I loved and encouraged my wife. The times that I invested and poured into my kids. The time that I took time to pray with somebody in our church. The time I took five minutes out of my day to pull out my phone and text five people that I could be an encouragement to and just say, hey, I thought of you and I prayed for you today. That's the kind of stuff that I want my life to be categorized by. Not television shows and entertainment. But it requires that I live a life thinking about the judgment of God one day. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, please make sure that you know for sure before you leave here today that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. That's the most important thing in the world. Christian, if you know that you're saved, you know that you're born again, would you make sure that any areas of hypocrisy are just completely and totally repented of and expunged from your life altogether? You'll be better as a result of it. Any sin needs to be confessed? Man, confess it today. Make things right with God. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.